0: For
1: right on me. I take
0: you as you are just for right on me. I take you right hey. streaming live from Treaty One Territory in the heartland me. of the Metis Nation, the, the place, place where the great waterways meet and the heart it of Turtle Island. I'm excited to the host the first New Blanche Toronto podcast, where we find ourselves in the territory of Toronto under the treaty of a dish with one spoon and is home to some of the most diverse population in Canada. I am your host and artistic director, Julie Nagum, and this is our second season of Belonging to Place. We are excited to showcase episode four, Creating Culture, which will connect how large-scale exhibitions and festivals activate creative cities to engage the public. We will reflect on how culture can be a transformative experience. This episode will focus on discussions around the support and creation of public exhibitions with past artistic director, artists, and key people such as Julie Pelgrin. Mira and Dr. Mark Campbell. I have already stated that Nuit Blanche is sometimes the unsung hero of the contemporary art world. At the same time, it is the people's event. It is for the public, and everyone that has been to Nuit has strong opinions on it, since they see it reflecting on their world and their participation in it. This massive economic implications on cities, and more broadly the arts, has had huge ripple effects over the past 15 years. Nuit Blanche Toronto has established itself as the largest public exhibition in North America and second to Paris internationally, drawing over 1.2 million people each year for a 12-hour period. We can witness this one-night event only once a year, which is part of the magic. This year, The Space Between Us has over 150 artists and over 170 projects and has gone fully citywide. It will be our largest Nuit to date and I'm excited to speak to Julie Pelgrin, who was one of the artistic directors for Nuit Blanche Paris in 2013.
2: This type of event is rarely or rarely comes from the initiative of a artistic director. It's usually the initiative of a city and I think it's more a matter of um, cultural policy. So I cannot say what it does you know, bring for a city or what it does for a city. And this choice of large-scale event was already a question for me before 2013 and has not stopped questioning me since then. Maybe because in France, as in many other countries now, this model or this kind of large-scale event has become predominant, and it's often at the expense of permanent organizations. Either museums or smaller organizations. I've already been thinking that it was a question and probably a problem to to do it at the expense of these organizations that do long-term work with a greater proximity with the artists and with more professional teams. So I have to say that I was pretty, uh, I had a pretty critical point of view <laughs> before I did it. And I probably still have. Because in addition, I think that the question of the... Well, now in 2021, I think that the question of the social and environmental responsibility of this type of event is more acute than than it was eight years ago. I mean, what does it mean today to commit such expensive financial material and human expenses For such a short time, because it's just uh, one night. And I remember I was, I was really struck by the way everything had been destroyed at eight o'clock in the morning. But I don't know, perhaps there are ways to think about an ecology of work today and forms of sustainability. But well, on my point of view, I don't know yet what they could be. But I'm, as what I understood, you probably found some of them in Toronto. But yes, that could be my, my answer concerning the relation between the city and this kind of event. I think that we should find a, probably a better balance between this large-scale event and the work, the, long, the long-term work organizations do sometimes with a lot of difficulties all year, all year long. But yeah, that's my point of view. I must admit that I'm always surprised by the public's appetite, appetite for this kind of event. I remember that Chiara and I were already surprised by the attendance of our edition of my Blanche. I think there were like two million spectators, which was crazy. But even, you know, the modest Ni Blanche that we organized here at La Vida Medici a few days ago was a huge success. And I must admit that there is a kind of particular joy in conceiving, but also experiencing this kind of event. And maybe this may have have to do with the dimension that we could call public space, even if this concept remains eminently problematic. But I guess that after the experience of the lockdown and confinement, I measure this kind of power of being collectively outside, as we could say. And I remember that in... 2013, the mayor of Paris kept telling us that he wanted the event to be festive. And I was really reluctant to this idea at the time because for me, art was a very serious business. (laughs) And I think it was Chiara who helped me understand that joy and laughter were serious games. And now I'm more convinced that the kind of we could say carnivalesque dimension, that the most serious proposals assume in the context of Nuit Blanche provide a kind of intensity in meeting art in this joyful crowd, this nocturnal and, as anarchists name it, momentanist chaos. So um, I'm pretty more convinced now than, than what I was at that time, that meeting in the streets <laughs> Uh, whether for demonstration or, or for Nile Blanche, <laughs> to me art, is something very important and something that probably I couldn't really understand at that time because I thought that we needed, how could I say, not, not really pure, but, you know, concentration and silence and... Also, dialogue around the art of the, the work of art, but I think that having party around and with works of art can be also a very um, serious way to to be in touch with them. So yes, I'm probably now more um, comprehensive with this um, kind of event. Yes, I tried to remember because it was not that clear uh, for me. I think when I look, I, I have to say something which was maybe pretty surprising for us, at least for me, because I can't speak for Chiara, but um, we were pretty enjoy and and proud of what we did for Mille Blanche and. I'm saying it was a surprise because, of course, the context is very difficult, whether in in technical (laughs) terms and with the political negotiations and so on and all these constraints you have. And we were probably more used to curatorial freedom at that time. Mm, But actually, I think we managed to to find a way to do exactly what we wanted to do, or maybe, maybe I could say that the context was even more stimulating than what we thought at the beginning. So the context were more or less decided by the mayor of Paris, who decided the in the, the areas we had to, to work in, and even the route through Paris. and. Um, we had to, um, to work out of it. And we had on the one hand, the, one, the working class districts of Eastern Paris and the other, um, the, um, the Ducks of the Seine. So we had a sort of double score on which we could uh, deploy or write our text, that of the revolutionary Paris of the commune and that of the romantic Paris that we tried to connect to each other and what I what I forgot and remember then is that we were we were inspired by the Situationists and their approach to the city through the, the notions of dérive and construction of situations. It means that I guess that we try to to approach. Um, public space less as a functional, continuous and compact space, which predefines orientations, but more as a way of going through ephemeral and heterogeneous atmospheres, as a way of exploring the power of dispersion and fragmentation. And I think it was, yeah, pretty important for me to to rediscover the city. With this point of view, and to redefine also what I had in mind as public space through all the propositions of the artists. So, we made a lot of commissions, new commissions, and we invited artists from all generations and all horizons to put the city in motion. And they really proposed a um, kind of derive, a drift in this landscape, which was composed of squares, streets, and rivers. But they also work with, who's, with those who inhabited or um, or used to inhabit it. And at the end, it was a way of mixing a history, a new history of the city made of raptures, struggles, political struggles, but also fantasies and romances. And um, I think it really worked, I hope so, <laughs> but I guess, this... <laughs> Situationist approach. Yeah, so I'm still very happy with that. And even if now I would probably do it in a totally different way, but, um, but I'm still very close to the point of view and the way we, we manage to work in this context. Well, as I said, I think that sustainability is the problematic issue for me, for me, Blanche both in terms of economy, ecology, but also in terms of cultural practices, cultural inhabits. I mean, where the public that discovers art during the Nuit Blanche go to museums more often afterwards. I don't know if this impact can be measured. It would take a huge study over the long term, to be sure. And I think that this kind of study only permanent cultural organizations are capable of doing. <laughs> but at least, um, I'm pretty sure that great part of the, the audience get in contact for the first time with contemporary art. And that even if we can't measure this impact, there is always an impact. <laughs> and yeah, we we programmed a lot of works uh, for this Nuit Blanche that deal with memory and the way memory works. I think about Chantal Akerman, who probably made her first performance here because she's well known for her experimental films. And she gave a reading of the manuscript of her novel for the whole night on the stage of the Châtelet Theater. And we have no archive of that. And, but I know that all the people who saw it kept a very, very strong memory of that moment. So I don't know if it, it will bring them to the cinema or to the museums afterwards, but I know that it's something the experience is so exceptional, in a way, extraordinary, <laughs> that you you continue to live with it as a spectator. So that's, that may be more in, an emotional impact, <laughs> as I could say, <laughs> of Blanche on the, the audience, on the art audience. Maybe not in terms of quantity, but in terms of proximity and intensity. That would be...
0: Creativity is the life force of our cities and well being. Art can spark dialogue and radical change for so many of us, and for many artists, Nui wants to provide a platform to have them shine at a large scale. It has been amazing dreaming up stunning visions to transform public space with over 150 artists for 2022. One of the most exciting projects for Nui Blanche. Is Mira's work at both the Oka Khan Museum and the Gladstone House, which I am super jacked to see her take over these spaces.
3: So I am a contemporary visual artist, live in Toronto, and I work a lot with cloth and migration so ideas of how these two intersect and i'm an immigrant settler myself i came to canada uh, two years old and i've uh, been here ever since so for me you know migration is such a big part of my personal story but i also think about it a lot in terms of how it impacts our identities how it impacts what we wear how it impacts sort of the history of place and the places between places so you know not belonging to any one place has sort of led me to spend a lot of time thinking about belonging to multiple places and and how that shapes a person and also how that shapes our clothing practices. So I work with a lot of different mediums. I'm primarily a painter, but I also work with fiber-based mediums. I also work with social practice. I also work with drawing quite a bit and performance to some extent. And uh, so I'm interested in this relationship between memory, cloth, and care especially as it relates to South Asia so I migrated from India to Canada and I'm really curious about how Cloth and textile and clothing and fashion create connections between one place and another. And so I explore these in multiple ways through another element of my practice is also design and illustration. So I'm sort of a multidisciplinary artist in that way. And I think the thing that strings together all the disciplines are the the themes and the ideas that I explore. I've been working as a professional artist for over a decade or more. I'm definitely a very much mid-career at this point. And I'm just super thrilled to have an opportunity to participate in NUI and engage the largest audience so far that I've ever had for my work to engage you know, just regular people in everyday experiences of art. So over the pandemic, I really became engaged in thinking about the histories of cloths and the histories of materials such as cotton. So I began to grow an indoor cotton plant. Cotton is not something that grows this far north. It's, you know, our climate and environment doesn't support it. However, I wanted to see what the development of fiber into might look like and and how slow that process is. So I started growing a cotton plant during the pandemic and it grew about uh, over seven feet tall. And it, it produced two cotton balls, very, very small, but it was magical to see fiber come out of a plant. This is not something that I've ever been familiar with. You know, I've seen fruit come out of a plant, but not fiber and quite magical. So that got me thinking a lot about, you know, during the heart of the pandemic when we were in isolation. And as an artist, I had to work, sort of change my projects to to make them fit into this sort of isolated working mode where exhibitions were off and galleries were closed. So I started thinking about these things more deeply and I began to think about the clothing care labels that you find on clothing. So the washing care labels. And these were developed in the 50s and the 60s and became an international practice where it was sort of a streamlined practice internationally where these little images would guide us to care for the clothing that we own in a certain way. So to wash it, how to wash it, how to dry it, how to dry clean it, how to iron it, etc. And I was thinking about these but wanted to expand them because these were very much about the end point of clothing. What do we? How do we care for the, the garment after we've purchased it, after we have it in our closet? And I, I wanted to expand this because I was thinking about, you know, clothing is not just what hangs in our closet or what we wear on our bodies, but there's a whole system of production that gets us, The cloth to us, and so how can we expand the understanding of care to beyond just the symbols that? tell us how to wash and dry our clothing. So I expanded it to think about the environment. You know, what's the environmental impact of the production of clothing and the disposal of clothing? What is the conditions of the factories in which clothing is made? As we know, it's a huge, huge global industry, the second most polluting industry in the world. And fast fashion is, you know, on the up and up. And there are people thinking about this, how to slow this process down. So through these clothing care labels, I wanted to think about the factories where the clothing's made, also the labor conditions for the workers themselves, and then also our love and care for the clothing that we do own. How did this cloth come to us? What is special about it? What do we feel when we wear it? What do we remember? And so I created a system, expanded system of symbols. And that was, you know, work that I did during the pandemic. And I created these actual cotton labels that I was mailing out to anybody who was interested in engaging with these labels. So when someone would receive a label, and because it was a pandemic, I was, you know, safely mailing these out. When someone would receive a label, they could mark it up, they could sew it onto an existing garment and and start thinking about care in these expanded ways. You know, the invitation to participate in Nui came along and it was very interesting to think about to think about how I can engage a larger audience with some of these ideas. And then that's, and that's how color of the year developed.
0: It's kind of amazing how the lockdown and the pandemic really affected creativity and how we relate to people. I think one of the best parts of being the artistic director was talking to artists during this time, scheming up plans for when we could return into public space. I just kept thinking about how could we try and learn from our past exhibitions, for example, Scarborough or the virtual Nui of 2020. I just kept thinking about how some of the best R&B, hip-hop and music are coming from this place and it's exciting to think about how we get to project that throughout the planet. I was hyped to talk to Dr. Mark Campbell on his research and practice of this cultural phenomenon.
1: So 2018 Nuit Blanche finally 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 comes to Scarborough and you know, to give your listeners an idea of what is, I mean, Scarborough is an outer suburb of Toronto. It's its largest borough, 650,000 people. The last time they counted, they stopped counting in 2000. Um, and the walkability score is a negative. The public transportation is horrible. So there isn't a, there never has been a dynamic art scene in Scarborough because everyone went downtown for those kinds of things. So there aren't galleries, there aren't artistic hubs, there aren't a lot of things. So when Nuit Blanche comes to Scarborough, I think I was invited to speak. I, I got a chance to give a paper that had no uh, scholarly connections. Into having to, you know, I had no aspirations to publish the paper. I had no aspirations of it wasn't part of a book or a chapter. It was just me kind of thinking aloud with the audience about the impact of hip-hop in Scarborough. So, uh, I'm a bit biased because I'm you know raised there, but I will say that a significant, significant portion of Toronto's best hip-hop comes from Scarborough. So, there is there is a lot to be said about the space. And now, when that event happened, I'm sure there was great media coverage of it. But one of the things that I saw That I did not see at Nui Blanche Large in downtown Toronto, which, you know, geographically more dispersed in Scarborough, the majority of the art was geographically bounded around the Scarborough Town Center, close to the light rail transit. What I saw was families of all kinds coming out to see the art grandparents with strollers, multi generational, you know, English language learners, you know, obviously probably migrants or recent migrants uh, or newcomer newcomer groups it was just the most dynamic cross-section of people coming to see the art and you know part of it is public spectacle i get that and part of it is is that this is the first time in this borough you could have fifty thousand people outside enjoying art You know, I'm I'm sure the numbers were more than that, because you could almost not move in in a lot of those spaces. So it was a wonderful and amazing experience. And I thought this is what Nuit Blanche must feel like if I was in, in a town like Guelph or in a town of half a million people where you could walk and visit everything. So in Toronto, you can't walk and see all of the Nuit Blanche pieces every year. It requires travel, significant travel on subways and streetcars, et cetera. And it was very different to be in Scarborough. And that was for me, that that was, you know, if I was to ever chart my growth and trajectory, you know, the first exhibition where I in that gallery where I went from DJing to having an exhibition to really, you know, welcoming in all of the Toronto hip hop community, hundreds of people from the Toronto hip hop community, um, you know, Nuit Blanche Scarborough was a different different posts right or epoch in my uh, in how i understand art art in toronto because it was finally accessible to huge cross sections of people that could have been the audiences long long time ago but really are just emerging as new audiences now because they could walk to the place they could walk through the place it was attached to so to give your listeners an idea Scarborough Town Center is this big mall um, with several condos around it and several restaurants and like enormous parking. Right, we can imagine any of these big malls, lots of parking. So a lot of and a light rail system that comes right into the into the mall area. So it was very accessible and it was just something that I had never imagined in my wildest dreams could happen in Scarborough. So it was it was an amazing moment. Uh, to say the least. And for me, uh, it felt comfortable and it felt like home because I was inside one of the new libraries that's uh, connected to that area. I was one of maybe a dozen speakers on the night. And Some of the speakers that came through, you know, I was like the early, early, early opening act for Socrates, for Cameron Bailey, for, uh, you know, all of these larger than life figures who just came and extolled the virtues of Scarborough. Right. And for me, that was the moment that I was like, okay, I have to keep keep exploring and living at this intersection where, you know, I'm invested in multiple art scenes. Um, and working across them to do the kind of archival work that I want to do that you know hasn't been really taken up in any concerted and sustained way The new show I'm working on it is I think it's like my eighth or ninth show and it's focused on looking at the aesthetic impact and the lineage of graffiti art on hip-hop's visual culture and everything that comes after the show is, being mounted at a gallery called Ajigemo in Ottawa. And it is a national show where I work with artists from multiple cities, probably six or seven cities across Canada. And I'm trying to look at and, and celebrate the ways in which graffiti artists, as you know, the, the visual artist component of hip hop culture, how they have embraced. The aesthetic and and moved and expanded their their visual arts pra- practice in in directions such as uh, Dedos is a, is an artist from Vancouver. He's m- moved into animation. Started out in graffiti. Corey Bullpit starts out in graffiti. Is also now you know a renowned carver. He's in the show. Wiz Juan from from Saskatoon. Also in the show, he's a tattooist now. So part of the show is about looking at aesthetically, what is the impact of graffiti and how the how do people scaffold careers on top of it or with it, you know, in addition to starting out as a graffiti artist? And what are some of the, you know, the more the aesthetic choices and the aesthetics that uh, these artists grow into and go on to you know, evolve with uh, some of the artists in the show are are doing street art um, and wheat paste and not exactly aerosol. And it really is is a capstone I feel like in, in terms of a decade of, of curatorial work that only looks at Canadian hip hop and some of the nuances and, and aesthetics around the culture.
0: I just love hearing everyone talk about how everything shifted to have Nui in Scarborough. It just gets me so thrilled to think about Etobicoke and their exhibition site, with all the local, national and international artists bringing their work to Humber campus. And at the same time, I'm so excited to imagine the impact on North York, especially with Mira.
3: So I knew that when the opportunity came up I immediately knew that I wanted to work with the Aga Museum and specifically with the garden outside of the museum that is a contemporary version of a Mughal garden known as a charbagh so four parks and they have these they have these five pools one in the center and one on each corner char means four and there are these you know gorgeous infinity blackstone pools outside of the museum, and I knew I wanted to work with them. And so I was thinking about water, obviously, because these pools are just filled with water. And I was thinking about how water is so essential and sacred and unequally distributed, and how cloth and clothing production really impacts water, water systems around the world, particularly in the global south, where a lot of cloth and clothing is produced, and in the life-giving nature of rivers and lakes and the life-giving nature where people use that water to cook and clean and bathe and drink and how rivers and lakes are polluted with dye runoff from cloth production. So, you know, on the one hand, colourful clothing, the idea of you know, just the lure of, of color is so, the energy of color is life giving But there's a shadow side to it, too. When it goes into over-hyper-production, like the way fast fashion does, the sheer number of items that are being produced it just creates an environmental situation where the toxic dye runoff from the production of these clothing literally pollutes waters and rivers and you know, kills them. And the people who rely on these places for life are at such a loss. So I wanted to sort of play with this back and forth and also recognize that the original idea of the Mughal Gardens on which the Aga Khan garden outside of the museum was inspired by, it was an idea of a garden where plants and sensuality and water were really elevated. There was such an importance given to these elements of life. And and so I wanted to sort of play with these ideas and have people engage with the pools in some way. So people who, you know, come to Nui that night really get to have an experiential sense of the sensuality of water, of the sound of water, the feel of water, the look of moving water. And so in doing this, there is a very simple practice. It's quite an intuitive um, ancient Japanese craft uh, called suminagashi. It sort of predates marbling. And it's an uncontrolled type of process of creating monoprints out of floating ink on water. So Senin Nagashi translates into English as floating ink. And I thought this is just such a perfect metaphor to think about the ink floating in rivers and lakes and polluting rivers and lakes, and the process of making a monoprint, you transfer the ink from the water onto a piece of paper or a piece of cloth and it literally cleans up the water. It picks up the ink out of the water and onto the paper. And you get this, you know, gorgeous print on, on your paper, but you also clean up the, the rivers and lakes and, and you get to feel the water and sort of participate in through your body in this action. And so it's a bit of an experiment, a bit of a giant experiment, actually. There are it's an open these are open pools, so there's water. Uh, sorry, There's wind, there's a potential for rain, there's a lot of movement and activity which is going to disturb the surface of the water. And so, you know, this is exactly what happens in rivers and lakes. You know, the ecosystem and the environment is unpredictable. We don't know. When a factory in the middle of the night just spills the toxic dye runoff into rivers and lakes, there is a chain effect. There is a chain that we can't predict. And, and we don't know exactly what's going to happen and how how bad things are going to get. So there's an unpredictability and and I think that unpredictability is mimicked in, in this project. I remember the very first Nui in Toronto, I was out till 4am with a friend of mine. <laughs> it's kind of shocking now, but I was out till 4am, we were hopping around all the different downtown sites and it was fantastic. I mean, at that point I think we both felt such a sense of excitement and liberation and it was fun engaging the streets and different sites in this way getting to not know what you're going to come across and just get to a site and experience what the artist created at that site so I think there's a magic in in that there's a magic in experiencing art that is not in a white cube that is not in a gallery that is not a paid presentation and there's unexpectedness there's a momentariness and I think sometimes that is transformative You know that can be really transformative because what we take away from it is the memory what we take away from it is an engagement with with our senses and the story we tell about it afterwards you know it's a 12-hour festival but the stories we tell about it continue on afterwards so i think it's fantastic to get large groups of people who maybe ordinarily wouldn't experience art in other ways experiencing art over the course of the night and taking over city streets, taking over neighbourhoods, meeting strangers, and just yeah, engaging with so many different projects.
0: Since its founding in 2006, Nuit Blanche Toronto has featured more than 1,600 art installations by approximately 5,800 artists and has generated over $443 million in economic impact and benefits for the city this year will be the largest to date and it will surpass paris with over 150 artists and over 170 projects in the downtown north york etobicoke and scarborough i am so pumped to bring this event back into the public for the largest one yet so much awe wonder and excitement for this magical takeover so i guess i'll leave it there then thanks so much for listening I would love to say chi-miigwech, Marci, and thank you to all the people that make this podcast possible, and tune in again for Nui's Belonging to Place.